everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, we're going to answer the remaining questions from the Ask Me Anything time from this past Sunday, July 26th. We have been doing an AMA time at the end of our Sunday services, and today, Manohar James, our Minister of Intercultural Ministries, is joined by Nicole Kyle, our Director of Music and Worship Arts, to talk through questions on Manohar's background and on his sermon. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. I am here with Manohar. Uh, My name is Nicole Kyle. I'm here with Manohar James, and we are part of the staff team at High Point. And we are going to be um, finishing up with the AMA questions that we didn't get to from this past Sunday. Um, Manohar, you preached this past Sunday, and we got to talk through some of the questions, but not all of them. So um, before we jump in um, to the questions about the sermon, there were a couple questions that were more about you and about India. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to questions. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So here's the first question. Which state in India are you from and what is the church like there? Yeah, I actually come from uh, a southern state of India called Andhra Pradesh, where Telugu is spoken. So, well, we have uh, about uh, two to three percent of Christians in my state. Okay. So, yeah, so church is like basically um, uh, poor and also from lower backgrounds, you know, but still um, God is powerfully moving in that part of the world. So, yeah, so I'm proud to be coming from my own state where Telugu is spoken. You know, India has what, 1,653 languages and dialects. So <laughs> it's one of those. I was listening to the date night podcast that you were on um, recently and you were talking a little bit about the number of languages and dialects and, and I've talked with you about it before. It's still just so just like, it's kind of mind boggling to me. And I think that's probably true for many Americans because America is large in terms of its space. Um, and There's mainly one, now maybe two, especially with the rise of Spanish in the country, but mainly just one language that everybody speaks. (laughs) Yeah. That everybody knows many languages. Yeah, well, uh, we speak six languages, my wife and I, um, which is not typical of Indians, but um, there are people who do speak uh, like us. Yeah. Well, you have you have heard this uh, story. It's probably this kind of joke when people say, when someone say like uh, speaks two languages, he's bilingual, and when he speaks more than two languages, he's multilingual. And if, <laughs> and if one person speaks only one language, that is American. Oh, <laughs> it's just a joke, you know. It's not to offend anybody, but you know that's what people say. That's so funny. That's yeah, I know, right? Um, and what about your son? Does he speak multiple languages? Well, he's a confused kid. 
Um, <laughs> he is registering all the languages that we exchange in our house uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, but I think he actually understands at least two languages in addition to English. Okay. Um, but he's not able to speak. But, you know, he's kind of um, Indian outside, but inside American. He even differs with us in certain things as if he's proud of growing up here. So, so there is that. So he mocks our accent and he mocks <laughs> at our, our language and things like that. But he's learning, though. Sure. Um, my son speaks with us. He speaks English. And then with my parents, he speaks Spanish. But he, um, if I ever speak to him in Spanish, he asks me to stop. He, he recognizes that Spanish is the language that he speaks with my parents. But with me, he'll always say, no, no Spanish, mama. <laughs> I know, it's very funny. But, you know, it's sometimes, you know, we just enjoy when children say those things, you know, because they're saying out of innocence, they don't hate any language, they don't hate anybody. But, you know, because they're kind of enjoying the fun of their own comfort in the language and then... Yeah you know, pick up another one and then, you know, things like that. So Yeah. Okay. Um, so the next question that's specifically related to India is this. Why is the south of India more Christian than the north? Well, this is a good question, but it's kind of, I should say, Western myth. Um, uh, it's not really true that when people say there are more Christians in the south than north is not really true. It sounds true because, in fact, there are two states in North India, which is Northeast, Mizoram and Nagaland. They, their state religion is Christianity. Hmm. Nagaland, it's like 80 to 90 percent Christians. In Mizoram, again, 90 percent of the state population is Christian. But people just ignore it because they don't associate northeast states with north but they are north yeah. mm-hmm. so in fact kerala which is the down south uh, where one of the disciples of jesus thomas came there and established seven churches and uh, really con- converted about 17500 people in 20 years of ministry and that state still has like 15% of Christianity. And then there is another state where Thomas died, uh, that's Tamil Nadu, adjacent to Kerala. And that's where you have like about 10 to 12% of Christian Christians there. Mm-hmm. And then you come to the rest of the states, like my state and all, it's 2% to 3%, that's it. So mm-hmm. how could we make it saying like southern states we have more Christians than Northerns. It's not true. I think they are kind of differing from Southern states with the Northern states minusing Northeast. Northeast also part of North. Yeah, yeah. So Northeast, you know, these two states like Nagaland and Mizoram, they are like Christian states, literally. Mm -hmm. So, and they don't calculate that population. If you add up that two states plus uh, two to three percent of Christianity in the rest of the northern states, probably they will weigh more than the south, but people don't see it in that, you know, uh, prospect. Sure. 
That's interesting. I wonder why that's the case that there's this myth that people hold. Do you have any guesses as to why? Yeah, the reason is uh, uh, because about first century itself, Christianity came to India. So Christianity always has been associated with um you know, southern part of India because Thomas came there and he made converts and the church was growing there for about 1800 years um, before it went to rest of the states. And even like Northeast where we have uh, uh, two states uh, full of Christianity, that happened just a couple of hundred years ago. Sure. Just recent phenomenon. So they don't see that. Mm-hmm. But they, they see that Thomas came to uh, South India 2,000 years ago. Therefore, um, that's supposed to have more Christians. You know, that's kind of, you know, just attribute uh, our assumptions to um, having this state uh, more Christians than any uh, other state in India, which is not really true. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, thank you for and clearing up. Um, okay, we're going to move aside from the questions that are about you, and we're going to move into questions that are more specifically related to the sermon that you preached. Um, but before we do that, I just want to give a quick reference. So you preached out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. That's and right. in this section, you hit on, well, Paul hits on a few things and you preached on those specific things. You talked about um, love for one another. You talked about not really keeping our to ourselves, not butting into other people's business. And you talked about our work. Um, and during the AMA after the sermon, we did talk a lot about love. Uh, and then there were some questions that we that were more related to work. And so I'm going to, we're going to go through those questions now. So ready? Yep. Okay, great. Okay, here's the first question. How can we discern if we should change our work when we are not doing well? Yeah, that's a very good question. And of course, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. Um, to see in one way just whether it should be seen as a spiritual thing or just in terms of yearning or whatever. But I think uh, the best way is to check whether we we are enjoying the job we are doing or not. So it's the first thing is I think we should find joy in the work we do. If we don't find joy, um, money is not just sufficient and it's not just enough. With Okay, I have a job and that gives me money um, so I can feed my family. I don't need to depend on anybody. Um, well, if you're not enjoying, the job will kill you. <laughs> you will burn out, um, probably. So that's one. Um, one is the finding joy for yourself so that, um, you know, you are emotionally up. You're not down, you know. And the second thing is, uh, does your work or the workplace uh, distracting you from God, um, <laughs> or yes, or does it lead you to the ways that are not pleasing to God? Um, so that's another area we need to check because sometimes uh, certain workplaces really take away our relationship with God. 
Um, uh-huh. So we really need to look at whether um, the workplace or the work itself is distracting um, to us. That's another checkpoint we should look for when we think of uh, whether that work is for us or not. And the third is, does uh, our work negatively affect uh, our relationship with the people we work in the same workplace or outside the work? Um, So it's another thing, like we need to check for our relationship with people in our workplace, because sometimes we are so much, uh, you know, uh, into the work and uh, sometimes we ignore the relationships or sometimes our work demands relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to make sure that our relationships don't affect our relation. uh, Our work doesn't affect our relationship. If our work affects our relationships negatively, that means um, we will not be able to really uh, a fruitful Christian. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's another area uh, we need to check. And then um, the fourth I would suggest is, is your work oppressing? Um, you know, so that, you know, you kind of murmur and you work with pressure. Uh, you work, but, you know, because you have a job and you don't need to depend on anybody, this is all great, but it is oppressive to you. So if it is oppressive to to you, you work with murmuring uh, and then you come back and you will naturally become oppressive to people under you. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it is in your household where you are kind of a leading guy or um, in your department, if, so, mm-hmm. if your boss is oppressing you, and then you will automatically tend to be oppressive to people under you, you know. So there is always yeah. that relation. So we need to check. I think that's what I said. Four things. One is finding joy uh, in the work we do. And second, uh, does our work really distract us from God or workspace distract uh, from God? And third, does our work negatively affect our relationship with people? working in the same workspace or outside and then fourth is our work oppressing so that we don't become oppressors to the people under us right um this was a follow-up question that i think fits well with what you just talked through but is it do you think that it's more than just doing the work but also in how we are to do the work Yes, absolutely. And I think it's a combination of both. Um, it's work as well as how do how do we do the work? Um, um, because we can't just choose the work that gives us income, uh, mm-hmm. not, but not joy um, and glory to God. Uh, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, um, you know, it's not just one way or the other. We, we have to take both like work. We have to work. Work itself. Work has come before worship. We have to understand yeah. that. So we yeah. have to work whichever calling we have. Work doesn't mean that, uh, like Paul said, uh, work with your hands. That's not just that because we have passed that time. Um, mm-hmm. We are in the 21st century, and he's talking somewhere in the, uh, in the first and second century situation where it's everything is mostly manual work. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not about um, blue collar or white collar jobs. Um, it's about um, the work that we do um, that will make us not dependent on others. Uh, mm-hmm. That is important. And again, second, how do we do is also important. Because, like that's what I said in the first um, question when I was answering that. I was saying, like, if we don't have joy, 
And if we're being oppressed um, in the same workplace or if our relationships are affected in our workspace, that all talk about how do we do our work. Uh, so, yeah, so like if we are oppressed and then we try to behave in the same way and if we are not enjoying and that is contagious you know our depression is contagious you know sometimes we don't enjoy the work we do um, and then we feel depressed every time and then we communicate that to the people around us and you know people catch up that although we don't say any word but people just catch up that kind of fever and finally it affects everybody in the space so i think uh, it's both and for us as christians we have a um, additional responsibility um, um, because in workplace people can go can go crazy um, because there is a different kind of uh, talk uh, vain yeah. talk uh, or coarse talk like sometimes filthy talk uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of the worldly uh, wordings vocabularies that people use in workspace so, mm-hmm. so we have to set an example that is what how we work in our workplace. That means we do the same work like everybody else do, an atheist or a secular humanist and a Christian, but how are we different in the same workplace? We actually take our ideals, whether do we glorify God in our work? Like we have to see if Jesus is given the same job sitting behind a computer, how would he handle it? Sure. That yeah. is the way we have to look at as Christians, you know, because every time I have this thing, like if I'm dealing with somebody, I just quickly think, how would Jesus uh, do? Um, how would he deal with them before I deal? So if I think that way before even I uh, talk with them, quickly my perceptions change and my way of talking changes right. my way of dealing changes so so i think yeah. how do we do is a really good uh, thing to glorify god uh, and also choosing yeah. work is also important there are unethical works in the world mm-hmm. uh, there are unethical they they are destructive um, to the self and to the soul so we have to choose the work um, that would not hinder the purpose of god in us and at the same time that would not hinder our spirituality or our growth. Okay, so this next person writes the following question. They say, some people think that poor people are lazy. However, they don't know the history of the poor. Cultural, generational disabilities, single parent homes, lots of different issues. How should Christians help those whom they do not understand? Yeah, that is actually uh, true, what is said here. Um, people think uh, the poverty is caused by uh, laziness. Um, that's not fully true, but there is a truth in that too. We can't fully ignore uh, that poverty is uh, purely cultural, um, purely generational, and purely disability things. There there is a fact in that. So I think, um, for example, if you take example of India, um, yes, absolutely. It's a kind of oppression that we experience from uh, generation to generation all the way um, like 2,000 years or more. Um, So um, we we never... Are you 
have the caste system right now. Yeah, we still have a caste system. So we don't allow uh, people to really um, uh, grow. You know, we try to pull each other. Actually, we use an analogy for ourselves against ourselves in India. Like, um, you know, crabs. You know, uh, we heard that um, uh, a white man uh, was carrying crabs in a truck. Um, and then he dumped all the crabs in the truck behind uh, without any, uh, what, is it, what is that? Any sheet covering over it, right? And uh, uh-huh. so um, this American said, we need to cover this, otherwise all these crabs will jump over and fall on the road. So uh, then this Indian said, no, 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 they are Indian crabs. Um, so if one is climbing, other one will catch and pull it down. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. so there is that aspect. So this cultural thing where some people intentionally keep others poor, um, there is that problem. But at the same time, um, there is the laziness, that part. Like when I came to this country, one of the things that, that, that really uh, pushed me to deep thinking is that why should people become poor when you have a lot of opportunities to work? Mm-hmm. If we keep the disability thing aside, sure, they accept the disability thing or sickness thing or um, you know whatever. But other than that, you have opportunity um, to excel in any way because you do not have much of uh, uh, dignity of labor issues here. So which is which mm-hmm. is great. So, but I think um, any time we kind of uh, deal with. Uh, uh, the poor and the poverty, um, we have to uh, study deeper uh, their backgrounds, um, the the group culture. Um, there is the group culture that goes with the poverty. And then there is the personal uh, problems that go with that. And there yeah. are community issues like within that um, group, group within the groups. There are certain things, the dynamics that holds, uh, that hold them back you know so i think uh, we have to study all those things we should not quickly jump into judgment like i already gave example of how i felt uh, at the beginning like uh, why these homeless people uh, stand like that and then talk with others never sit with them and talk with them directly so yeah. so the poor people when we think of poor we need to really sit with them if we are concerned about them and talk to them if there is any way we can fix it, we can fix yeah. it. And believe me, like when I when I was in India, I was uh, serving as a seminary president. And then that was the time where Nick Gibson came there. And Nick Gibson came and he taught some courses. And, uh, and in fact, this guy saw some potential in me. And he said, Manohar, you need a PhD. Um, you need to study more. Um, so today... If he had not picked me up from there, emotionally, sure. yeah, we've been taking risk. I would have been someone like them, like pulling everybody down each other, keeping yeah. in the same place, everybody else. And then I want to be in the same place. I never will have a growth. Someone sure. has to redeem. So Nick Gibson, Pastor Nick Gibson, he jumped into my life to um, raise me to the level I am today with the PhD. You know, and he thought, yeah. He needs that. So he took risk for me. So how many people do that? 
So we have to really uh, risk our lives to help people who are struggling. Um, And sometimes, like Paul said, we have to warn those who are idle. That's what he tells in chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians. And in fact, when he is telling people not to depend but to work, and become self-sufficient. He was actually referring to three kinds of people in that Thessalonian church. First group is um, uh, who are kind of looking for social status. They don't want to work with hands anymore because Greeks Mm. thought working with hands means it only fits to slaves. So I am not a slave anymore. I'm freed in Jesus Christ. So I don't want to work menial jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there is another group who are kind of over spiritual. Jesus is coming soon. I don't want to work. I only wanted to do all spiritual stuff. I mean, yep. yeah, you have to do spiritual stuff. What about food? <laughs> what about survival? You need something to eat, right? So that group is another group. And then the third group is uh, kind of exploiting others others' uh, generosity. You know, we, I, anyway, we have resources you know, we have benevolence fund. Somehow they will yeah. not let us suffer. So I don't need to work. <laughs> let me somehow survive uh, in the spiritual area with kind of, uh, you know, meddling into other things sometimes, you know, right. doing this and that. And that there, so these three groups in context, we need to uh, consider, you know, talking about like literally. Um, well, I think that we can identify in different ways with these sorts of things. There are definitely experiences I think that we each have where we think, I don't want to have to do that sort mm. of work. Mm-hmm. That's been me for one reason or another, whatever the reason is. And so we can find ourselves in that camp. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think, you know, it's easy for us to read through scripture and to not identify ourselves in the, the roles that need correcting yeah. when in fact, Many times that's exactly where we should identify ourselves in Scripture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, um, I have seen some of some of us actually have gone as a research point of view to the poorer countries and uh, looked at their lifestyle. But I have lived poor. I have seen poor from inside out. And there are different yeah. qualities um, within poor. Even their mentality um, is kind of narrow. Um, you know, they get easily hurt and they get angry easily. I have seen even within my own family, my own household, my relatives, uh, I always see difference within myself and them when I have grown grown one or two steps above. And then I tell them why you need to be angry for petty things. And why you need mm-hmm. to waste your time on insignificant things. So there are some kind of characteristics in the poor that some of us have to help them so that, you know, they will uh, cross the bridge with us. Um, yeah. So otherwise, One, you know, it's going to be hard. Yeah, I think it's when you brought up how Nick took a risk mm-hmm. on you in your life. It's funny. I think he's done that with a handful of people because he took a risk in hiring me as well. And when I think about that, there was something to like, it was going to reflect on him if I was a bad hire for the church, for example. And I think this is a really helpful metaphor that there, 
there are times when we are working with people who we may not understand, Mm -hmm. where we need to be willing to sacrifice our notoriety, notoriety, I can't think of the word, but (laughs) sacrifice our reputation, sacrifice our comfort, sacrifice something of ours in order to work with this person or this group of people that we may not naturally understand, but that it it involves us giving of something to work with them, to understand them more, to try to give them opportunities for growth, for um, education, for a job, whatever it might be. And so I think that's, it's helpful because I, as you were saying this, I just was thinking to myself, man, when is the last time that I risked something of myself for the purpose of trying to benefit another person to like a, to a large degree? And I, I don't know. I, I'd have to think about that. And I know. So, I know. It's really, really important. Sometimes we don't want to risk our reputation. We don't want to risk our reputation. We don't want to risk our, uh, um, you know, even uh, resources uh, to that extent. Um, right. So I think that that's very important. And second, it's like one size fits all. That kind of thinking we have when we think of particular kind right. of group of people. Um, whether they are poor or whether they're of different culture, you, until that's what I said. Until we get into their shoes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we will never be able to understand what it means to live in that kind of situation. How they would like to be helped. So mm-hmm. we we need to get in. Sometimes we only get behind their back <laughs> researching, but we don't get into their shoes. That's what I was emphasizing on my sermon. Hey, get into their shoes. That is yeah. very key. That's what Jesus did. He went down to the people. You know, one of the mm-hmm. things that I like uh, in the Gospels is when Jesus saw the crowds, he had a compassion on them. He saw right. them like sheep without shepherd. I mean, the same crowds were watched by the Pharisees, by the priests, and by other spiritual people. Never felt anything different. But Jesus yeah. had a different eyes, different perspectives when he saw the poor, when he saw the suffering. But again, yeah. one more thing I want to say about poor is that poor is going to be always with us. Mm-hmm. And we are not going to eliminate the poor. Either by criticism or by you know, like whatever we do, we give all the money we have and distribute the worldwide equally. Still, we will have poor. Why? Because that is how all those who have enough will exercise generosity. So we need some poor to exercise generosity. Otherwise, we have to remove generosity from our dictionary because everybody <laughs> don't need anybody. So this is this is actually reflecting God's nature in us. Otherwise, we will not know how God is generous to us. So I think this we, we don't have to say like, yeah, we don't need poor. We don't uh, want to help poor. We hate poor. We don't like poverty to exist and all. These are nowhere close to the biblical perspective. We need poor so that we will exercise. It doesn't mean we should intentionally keep uh, people poor, but I'm saying when poor is there, our responsibility to just go and help them in any way possible. Well, this is great. This gets to the final question. So this is the last question. In your sermon, you gave the example of the Shakers who had um, farmland and they found out that there were people who were stealing from their crops Mm -hmm. and 
um, they ended up, am I remembering this correctly? They ended up growing more crops Mm -hmm. for, okay. So this, um, this reminded me of, of Hebrew law and them specifically with Ruth Mm -hmm. when she, and after the workers went through the field and the, the law was that they couldn't go back to get more because they needed mm. to for those who had to come. Okay, so I follow you there. Here's, here is the question that this person wrote. They said, the shakers enabled their neighbors to become thieves and made no efforts to prevent them from continuing in this soul-destroying path. How do we love our neighbors without enabling their self-destruction? Yeah, that's actually a very thoughtful question. But also I wanted to say that the person who is asking this question jumped into conclusion, which I haven't concluded in my sermon. <laughs> so um, uh, it's it, it doesn't mean that shakers have not gone uh, beyond what I said. Probably mm-hmm. they have. In fact, probably many thieves could have become like shakers themselves um, uh, because they always believed in gospel love. Uh, It's not humanitarian love. So they always believed in gospel love means they were responsible um, to um, uh, preach the gospel through their actions. So Mm -hmm. I don't agree with uh, this thing, but I I agree with the, the question that would be you know, self-destruction, you know, when we help people without uh, some um, good judgment and good thinking. But as far as Sekers is concerned, um, uh, I believe the story doesn't end there. Uh, I was only focusing on their love. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't focus on the poor people there. I didn't. Yeah. So the, the, I didn't even focus on thieves there. I was only thinking about how these people dealt. And in fact, you imagine um the more we love the thieves the more they become like us you know i have actually changed some of the stealing people in india yeah. I, I have changed by my attitude um and they wanted to become like me uh, but if i yeah. if i become too judgmental and do like legally things and all i would have no connection between yeah but again yeah. but again you know stealing happens in three ways um whether you agree with me or not first one is need Need-based stealing. Second is greed-based stealing. And third is habit-based stealing. Mm. So some people by need, some people by greed, some people by habit. They just do it because they grew up stealing and all that. They don't even worry about the implications and all. But when people do based on need, it's okay to let them have something from us and then teach them uh, how to how to survive? Um, you have heard this common saying, like um, if you give a man a fish, mm-hmm. you feed him for a day, um, but teach him how to fish, he you feed him for a lifetime. Um, yeah. Uh, but the thing is, first you have to give him fish, <laughs> even to go for fishing. Sure. So, so you sometimes we give a net and he doesn't have energy even to go there. First, you have to yeah. give him fish anyway. Then afterwards, net. But the 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 moral of this proverb is like you don't keep giving fish, but give right. fish and then transition to net. So yes. here are some books I have. Um, one is uh, um, when helping hurts. Uh, you know, 
know. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, written by Steve Corbett and uh, Brian uh, Fickert. So uh, this is a good book uh, they can read. Uh, and th- there is another one, The Poor Will Be Glad, uh, which okay. is uh, written by Peter um, Greer and uh, Phil Smith. And this is uh, another book. But again, um, this book says how we can um, eliminate poverty, which is not going to happen in our lifetime. Um, but anyway, but this will be like kind of good resource books uh, yeah, for us. And again, um, the thing is, when Paul said, love one another, it includes the poor loving the rich who are not helping. Hmm. Sometimes we misunderstand that. It is love one another. It's not like, you know, loving the poor, loving the suffering people, loving the um, yeah. minority. This is how we always think. No, it always, even the poor people have bad thoughts. They don't even love, even those yeah. people have these things. So it is loving one another. So when we talk about uh, loving one another, we have to see what we can do with our limited resources. One of the bad traits of the poor people, sometimes they feel like, the responsibility lies only with the rich, <laughs> with those people who are with yeah. more resources. But that's not true. So we have yeah. to keep helping each other. Um, and at the same time, like I said, we have to we have to give fish and then transition to, um, you know, giving them a net, uh, you know, yeah. so that they can go and catch the fish. That's what uh, uh, Nick Gibson has done to me. Mm-hmm. Nick Gibson has done to me, you know, uh, what he did was, you know, he brought me here and then he, um, you know, I used to go back to him every time I have some struggle and as if he he's my uh, my dad, you know, like kind of help me, you know, he's younger than me. Uh, yeah. But he never, he never saw me from a different perspective. He just saw that I just need help. And yeah. then he just embodied Christ's love and he resembled more like Jesus than himself. And he jumped mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and helped. So I am kind of living testimony to say that because sometimes we use examples of like 1800s and 1900s or yeah. 1700s that we don't even relate with. And then people are next door to us we can learn from. Yeah. So taking yeah. yeah, so so it's like we we don't want we don't want to have that thought like that fear at the beginning, like we're going to destroy if we help. If we do that, we become judgmental. Mm-hmm. Sometimes this is what happens when a poor person is there. We think that he doesn't have taste buds. So whatever we give, he has to eat. Sure, right. Uh-huh. This is the problem. Like One of the problems is like we become too judgmental when they are poor. Okay, they, they are hungry. So we just, yeah, we just need to give them something um, yeah, so they can fill than- the stomach. Yeah. the most generous thing that we have and can give yeah okay so so we need to understand they have taste buds too and they have a yeah. desire as to what what really satisfy them not in yeah. the terms of greed but in terms of need so yeah. so that is what we should do we should continue to become like jesus how jesus jesus is the example think yeah. like jesus so that you yeah. will act like jesus yes 
Manohar, thank you for um, spending some time going through these questions. And thanks for sharing a little bit about yourself. And thank you to everybody who asked these questions. We hope that this um, podcast was helpful for you as you listened. And um, Manohar, you're preaching again in a month or so, right? Yeah, in November. In November, actually. Okay. All right. We're looking forward to that. I'm excited for that. I love getting to hear you preach. Um, And thank you, everyone. And we uh, we will talk with you next time. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.